Welcome to Project Chatter, the podcast where PPM experts from various sectors talk about the latest trends. Listen to Val and Dale as they talk about tried and tested best practices and share their unfiltered thoughts about the industry. Whether you're here to learn how to progress your career, improve your project control skills, or just want to hear an Aussie and South African rant about projects, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Project Chatter podcast with your hosts, Dale Fung and Val Matthews. This podcast is brought to you by Innate. We hear it from our podcast guests frequently. Today's capital projects require the highest degree of visibility. That's why we at the Project Chatter podcast want to tell you about construction project management software from Innate. It's software that integrates every aspect of your project and puts you in control. Innate's cloud-based solutions provide a connected data flow that improves efficiency and guides better outcomes across the entire project lifecycle. See what Innate software can do for your next construction project. Learn more at innate.com. That's I-N-E-I-G-H-T dot com. This podcast is brought to you by Plan Academy. Is your company proactive when it comes to scheduling? Many companies believe project schedules are just the requirements of the contract, but companies looking to gain an advantage strategically manage their project timeline, resources, and budget. Plan Academy helps construction companies improve their project controls through immersive online training courses. At Plan Academy, your team can learn construction, planning and scheduling theory, how to master scheduling software like Primavera P6, and even advanced scheduling techniques. Plan Academy's courses are 100% online and can save your company thousands when compared to costly in-person training. Visit planacademy.com forward slash chatter to download course outlines and talk to a training specialist now. Hi everyone, this episode is brought to you by Just Do. Just Do is a portfolio project management tool we've been using at Project Chatter. Whilst all other systems cater for small teams, Just Do caters for teams large and small, plus it has no set hierarchies, meaning your structure, your platform, your workflow. I agree, Val. While Just Do is simple to use, it also has a lot of powerful functionality. My favorite is the task-specific chat. Yes, and for all you slackers out there, don't wait for Monday. Do check out justdo.com. Now on with the pod. On today's show, we welcomed Sarah Shooter to discuss how to make law work for the construction and engineering industry. Sarah is an independent UK qualified solicitor advocate and runs her own legal and training consultancy. She has 19 years experience as a specialist infrastructure lawyer. We were certainly in for a treat felt because I think you said in the beginning, you're like, you fell asleep in construction law class. Uh, but mm. I think she reinvigorated your interest in construction law. She certainly did. And we did prod her for some real life scenarios and stories. And I won't give away uh, some of the experiences. And she was very, very um, transparent about them, which is great for a lawyer. Uh, so she does go into some detail. But what were your best parts, Dale? My best parts? Mm, I think the Swiss cheese story was pretty interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that was pretty cool. But no, she, she, she certainly knows her stuff. And it was so great. We, we could have probably spent, we say this a lot, but honestly, we could have probably spent another hour and a half on top of, you know, what we spoke to her about and, and it wouldn't get boring. But I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. But Martin, what were your favorite bits as well? I think I, the bit I found interesting was just how few resources there are for project managers around contract law and given how important it is to delivery and given how the project manager's role is is evolving you know we're talking leadership cost time quality they need to be commercial managers it's, it's a really tough role um 
so yeah that was that was interesting um we talked about the simple present active voice so be sure to listen out for that one yeah exactly val your best bits look i love the idea that we could talk about freedom of contract under common law i think we talked about various elements around magna carta and why that was important and we even got to the z clauses for anyone who's worked with nec contracts and i thought that was all very interesting yeah, indeed. For those that don't know what Z is, it's Z for everyone else. That's not in English. Well. Yeah, exactly. There we go. <laughs> but folks, sit back, enjoy, go for a run, go for a walk, enjoy the podcast. Hello, Project people. A very warm welcome to our new episode of the Project Chatter podcast. It's great to have you back. Uh, remember to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player and YouTube. If you'd like to see our bloopers, thanks, Martin. And our very friendly faces. Dale, how you been, buddy? Long time no see. Yeah, it's been a while. I've been great. Uh, yeah, not too much happening. We had a mini heat wave, uh, which has been fantastic. I know, I know. But you got to celebrate these things in the UK. It's a rarity. And I, I, I think it's the last bit of sunshine we'll have for the year. Um, but it is September, so we got to count our blessings. It is getting darker earlier which is strange as well mm. but i'm sure martin is happy that this sort of mini heat wave is over because martin we spoke about before that you suffer you know factor 50 whenever the sun's out um <laughs> how do you feel about this i'm, I'm glad it's over now <laughs> it, was, um, it was just back to being indoors all the time a bit like that actually um, yeah so, with the bunny yeah. awesome all good well look let's get our guest in here because uh you know we talk all day but uh very warm welcome and we're joined by sarah shooter hopefully i got that right today how are you hi hi guys yeah really well thank you very much i've actually quite enjoyed the heat wave despite being a redhead but um i am slightly happier now it's a tad cooler yeah no nah, that's great and look this is the first time we've really isn't it though that we've really talked about kind of law yeah in construction and engineering and i'm mm. i'm pretty fascinated by it actually because we've kind of dissected a lot of other subjects over the last year um so thank you for being the very first guest to talk about this <laughs> wow um, gosh where thank should we you. start sarah should we start with the origin story how do you get into law because i remember i did one subject in law and i almost fell asleep and um <laughs> it was the most driest boringest uh, oh no wait no it wasn't it was corporate governance but it had law in it and it was it was terrible but how did you get into law where, where's, where does it start for you Oh my goodness, it probably starts um, around about the slightly uh, nerdy age of about 14 or 15. And, you know, genuinely being really interested in what was going on, being an avid reader, following politics. I remember I used to lie on the floor for the whole of Sunday afternoon reading all of the papers from cover to cover. Um, I don't know where I found the time to do that. I've got an 11 year old wow. who's, you know, just started secondary school and she's kind of starting to manage her time as well. And it really took me back to thinking about, you know, where do you take your life? What do you want to do? But I genuinely was really, really interested in law. Um, I had a couple of outlets through um, a great uncle of mine. You know, it's always handy to get that sort of leg up to get a bit of experience. And I was really lucky at the age of 16, 17 to be able to go and do a bit of summer holiday work um, with him, but basically just trailing around afterwards, you know, carrying, carrying papers and stuff. But, you know, that gave me a real insight into what it was like to be 
you know, doing law um, as it happened in London, which is where I am now, but that isn't where I started. Um, and then going out and doing lots of different other work experiences through the medium of school, then through university and all of that. And I chose law at university. I did a pure LLB, Bachelors of Laws. Um, and, um, you know, I to be honest, I did really throw myself into it. I won't say I was a super duper student and I probably also fell asleep from time to time. Um, <laughs> but I really picked myself up and I got really interested in some of the specialist modules that I was able to choose. Some of the really basic stuff is flipping boring, but you've got to nail it and you've got to get it right in order to then be able to go and choose some of the more nuanced stuff like corporate governance. Like in my case, I did medical law. I really enjoyed that one. Um, I did a specialist module on um, uh, child and family law. Actually won the Lincoln University Prize for it as well. You know, and oh. here I am firmly ensconced in the corporate world. So, you know, somewhere along the way, all of that stuff just kind of came together. Um, and, you know, the rest of it, as they say, is history. But I have had quite an interesting career um, insofar as it's been tripartite, having been in private practice and also as an in-house counsel and also for the last few years um, uh, running my own um, legal consultancy. So I, I, I do wear that badge with, with pride and the variety of experience I hope has really lent itself now as I enter my <clears throat> 20th year of practice um, to having a really kind of well-rounded um, experience, um, albeit quite specialist in, in, in the niche of construction and engineering. Wow. Well, that is amazing, Sarah. Um, I, I, I'm sure the listeners are listening with intrigue and going, okay, so where do projects fit into all of this then? Why are you on the Project Chatter podcast? Mm. Well, I think there's many places it, it fits in having spoken to you before and also, you know, having a look at your bio. Um, but I wonder if you wanted to fill them in as to sort of your experiences and projects and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, when I was a trainee lawyer, um, a typical thing that trainees have to do is you have to go and have, you have to go and sit in what's called a seat. It's basically a department, you know, fancy words, legal people and all that. Um, and the firm that I was with had four of those seats. Um, I did um, insurance for the first one. I did um, corporate, specifically health and safety and regulation for the second one. Then I did construction and engineering. Oh, no, I didn't. I did commercial litigation for the third one. And then my fourth one was construction and engineering. And I was super lucky because I realized that I could bring perhaps not so much the medical thing, although there's elements because I've done inquests and things like that. Um, all of those four things together in the world of projects. And I really, really took to engineering. Um, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a scientist. I did get good GCSEs in science, um, but I, you know, I firmly went down the path of arts and mathematics um, for my um, A levels. And then I, as I said, I did this pure law degree. But I found something in that final seat that I did in construction and engineering. Um, I was working with a QS turned solicitor, um, so he had a really interesting angle on having come to the profession late as a second career. Um, and I, I kind of worked out that having that 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 blend of all the experience I'd had in the other seats really lent itself to working in the world of projects. Uh, and I've been, you know, so lucky to have worked on so many interesting things, um, you know, ever since that. So it all really just kind of magically came together at the end. You know, life has a lot of luck in it. My granddad used to say that to me all the time. Um, you know, you do have to work hard for sure, especially in law. It is really competitive, but you do need, you know, a helping hand and a stroke of luck at the same time. And then once you've been given those, you've got to grab them and roll with yeah. it. And I yeah. did. 
no that that that's interesting and you know so you mentioned health and safety but i also know mm. you you've done quite a bit of contract law as well um and i the health and safety one is obviously quite intriguing and we'll get into some of the interesting stories and your views around those but i think the contract law angle would be particularly intriguing in terms of sharing your views and that and now we do have this topic of making law work hmm. right so often if you think about it you don't think about the law and projects until you need to hmm. until it's too late potentially so maybe this is a podcast that those listening in will go well maybe we should start thinking about the law before we have to think about it so i wonder if contracts have such a huge impact these days on how projects are being delivered around behaviors, culture, you know, on the podcast, we talk about, you know, the triple constraint, leadership, culture, behaviors, delivery, risk, the works, technology, yet the foundation of all of that is that contractual relationship. And that can be administered in various different ways. And with the best intentions, NEC has, you know, mutual respect and all that type thing. With the best intentions, that often doesn't happen. That's what, well, in, in myself, Martin, and, and Val's experience, at least, it often doesn't happen. And so I wonder then from your view and, and you know, what you've seen, are there tips, hints, angles, stories that, you know, those listening could go, okay, how can we, how can we, get to a place where we don't have to rely on the contract necessarily. It's just something we need when we need it, but actually we, we should be able to collaborate without it or potentially going, well, we should stay on side. I, I don't know where to start with this. I'm just going to hand well, to you. There's many questions and many rabbit holes that we said. Gosh, there, there is so much. You're absolutely right. And I have to say every single one of those things that you have mentioned comes together depends upon and impacts on and through a contract and that is you know the nub of it my job is done when people understand what the contracts are all about because the contract is your framework it's your relationship foundation but it's all it is also the means the vehicle it can be documentation it can be an oral contract um, but it is the means by which the party's relationship is regulated and it's regulated through agreement now, there are other regulations that sit around the edge, um, you know, legal stuff like don't steal from your neighbor, you know, obvious things like that. Don't put in a fraudulent application for payment, things like that, you know, but those are norms and they're societal norms in some ways. But the rest of it, we have this wonderful thing in um, common law, which is, of course, both um, foundation of law in South Africa and in Australia as well, and many other jurisdictions around the world common law has freedom of contract and freedom of contract is a wonderful thing it means you can agree anything you like provided it is legal and of course that then comes back to um, laws and legislations and what is societal norms but other than that you can do what you like so the contract is this wonderful opportunity for parties to projects to be able to to to, to build an agreement that suits their purpose and this is one of the reasons why i wrote and i this took me a long time to write the making law work for the construction and engineering industry, um, because that's really what we do. It's really where my personal passion is. And it's what I feel very strongly about. Contracts matter enormously. We don't pay enough attention to them. Lots of people don't have enough time and opportunity to pay attention to them. But really, ultimately, when push comes to shove, 
and a court or an adjudicator or an arbitrator is asked to look at the parties' relationships and to resolve and determine and make a decision which is going to bind those parties forever and a day, subject to an appeal court, um, the contract is where you're going to find out what the, the rules and regulations of that arrangement are, what the parties have agreed as between them. And it's going to be a relatively unusual situation where that tribunal, that court arbitrator or adjudicator is going to unpick that contract and say, no, nah, we don't think this was any good. Actually, we're going to impose another set of rules and regulations on you. Um, and, and we don't like the terms that you have agreed between you because commercial parties have that freedom of contract, as do individuals, by the way, but the rules pertaining to individuals is slightly different where you've got two commercial parties coming together to do a project it's going to be a um, very very rare occasion indeed when the contract is going to be um, pulled apart in such a way that the terms are not going to be binding on the parties so it, it, it's absolutely fundamental that parties take time to properly negotiate the arrangements that they want to make that are going to bind them to each other for what could be quite a long period of time and to have residual rights and obligations liabilities duties and all sorts of other potential things i mean when we get into really complex projects and we talk about indemnities we talk about cross claims and undertakings and all sorts of really difficult contract law stuff but which has huge amounts of risk financial reputational um, impact risk attached to it, um, investor risk, ESG, you know, when you get onto all of that side of things as well, um, then you really have to, then you really start to understand why the contract matters so much. So Val, I hope it wasn't contract law that you fell asleep in. If it was, um, come and join my series on contract law for APM, which I am in the middle of doing at the moment. And you'd be very welcome to do catch up on webinar one. And the live webinar is the second one is next week. And the third one is in November. So you haven't missed yeah. too much. I would love to take you up on that offer. And <laughs> you know, honestly, if it was you that was delivering the training, maybe I wouldn't it have is. fallen asleep in the first place because I am interested. <laughs> this is interesting now. So it's, it's piqued my interest and, um, I had some questions around, and I love the idea of freedom of contract. And I think that's great that you can you can set your own clauses. And you know, sometimes it gets a bit carried away, um, the old Z clause, and there's about fifty pages of that. Ah, well, but that's, I had a a, question. that's a discussion we'll come to, I'm sure. Freedom of oh, contract yeah, has the... been around since the Magna Carta. You know, since mm. it was written down, and of course, it's existed before then because people have always had what we call civil dealings. You know, it's very basic buy sell. Mm. you've got something i want what can i give you in return it's super simple and and contracts can be as simple as that but of course they can be hugely contract complex as well but yeah we'll get yeah, to sets i'm sure agree and <laughs> i was just taken back you know dale and i've, I've met a lot of you know evangelists in the project management suite right who talk about project delivery they talk about project improvement they talk about project efficiency we've had six sigma guys on we've had you know, we're, we're looking at project at all different angles and we're super curious. And I know Martin is as well. Um, what we don't know is why isn't, and this is just a curiosity. I don't know why, but if you look at take PMBOK or any other methodology that is mm. a certification for project managers, there is nothing in there. Uh, even though the triple constraints real, right? let's say that's the outcome, right? It cost quality time and scope. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you want to get that, sorted it out you need to have 
you know, the body of knowledge, which is 12 knowledge areas. Now, one of those knowledge areas is contract law. And I'm just wondering, what, what do you think about that? I mean, I think they've just completely missed probably the elephant in the room. If you think about it, it, it's probably the one of the trickiest. It's one of the hardest. It's one of the ones that impacts projects the most. Hmm. Yet no one gets taught it. Um, what's, what's your view on that? Uh, yes. Um, I, I've been working with, with, with PMI as well as with APM for yeah. a number of years now. I am quite evangelical about contracts and the value of contracts to project managers, because as you rightly say, you know, things like the, the PMBOK guide and even the APM's body of knowledge, although they've done a lot mm. more work, I'm on the contract SIG, um, on this kind of topic, you know, I suppose that there's a very short answer to the PMI point, um, which is that they are concerned mainly with what we call internal projects. They're not particularly concerned uh, and therefore don't teach uh, an area of in the 12 areas, et cetera, to what we call external projects, which are projects that are outsourced for profit. Um, I'm going to throw in here a reference to the Project Business Foundation, um, where I'm, I'm a, a member of the board and I lead on um, the alternative dispute resolution um, and education and, and learning side of things as well. Um, Oliver Lehman, who you might know, um, is a, a very well-known project manager um, from Germany. He's been involved with PMI for many, many years and, and been kind of pushing this as a topic. And he and I came together completely separately and independently at a PMI conference a few years back, where, we, where I was up on the stage talking about um, this, this whole idea of why contracts are important to project managers you know and he came mm. over to me and said I've been trying to do this for forever and you know and here we are four years later and, and we've got this um, you know this, this new not for not for profit going um, uh, and plenty of other people besides us involved so yeah contracts are, are hugely important and it's a huge hole actually um, and it's a and, and I think it's it's a real shame, actually, for project managers that it isn't a routine thing, because I think if things become routine, um, they become part of the psyche. It is part of what you do. Um, it is a norm, if you like. It isn't a strange mm. thing. So, yeah, you can go on a course and learn some contract law. But, you know, again, this is one of the driving factors in my business. OK, so what? I've learned a heap about contract law. I can tell you what an indemnity and an undertaking is and the difference between them and the circumstances in which they apply. But what the hell has that got to do with my project that's going on over here? So one of the things that we pride ourselves on here is translating that difficult stuff, that legal language, the sometimes garbage, to be honest, um, into um, uh, clear language um, and into consistent terms and into things that people understand because of course you know the whole world of projects is about certainty and risk and getting uh, you know the, the the three pillars right that the quality the cost and the time and getting them all to come together such that you can deliver what is a successful project and of course that depends on what you define as success um, then you know you do that through the medium of the contract you set that foundation, you regulate that arrangement, you put some processes into place whereby people are going to regulate themselves, including their behaviours, including how they're going to measure stuff. Um, and hey, presto, you come out with project managers that are much more well-rounded, that are more capable and more competent. And of course, having, um, having the capability and uh, an additional competence to do your job as a project manager is actually one of the triangulated bits of PMI as well, which is all about leadership and business and, um, you know, being more than just the, the sort of technical project manager who can, you know, um, put a WBS together look at a program, talk to people occasionally and, um, you know, do a little report with a nice pretty graph. Um, it's really yeah. important for project managers to be able to do all of those things. 
to do that, you've got to have a decent handle on contracts. Yeah, and I recognize more now than ever that maybe that's the reason I got out of project management because it's getting really hard. You know, there's a lot of but there's a lot of various fusion skills you need to adapt mm. to. It's not just like you said, it's great to be able to report where you are and you've got to motivate the team and you've got to key contractors in line and you've got to manage up and you've got to negotiate with the client and you've got to manage risks. You know, there's a lot of various things in the air. Um, I'm going to go to Martin now because I know Martin's also interested in this space and he's probably got some scenarios. Martin, what do you got? Um, so we, we talked about a few rabbit holes of commercial law earlier. Let's, let's just dive straight into one. Go on. Can, think, can NEC3, 4 and things like Earn Valley Management ever exist in, in harmony? You, you've got your EVM baselines, your last accepted programs, your, your application for payments, reported actuals. Can it and work? You're and you're asking one project manager to do all of that. I mean, it's yeah. so incredibly difficult, isn't it? NEC is actually a great example because the, the, the breadth of the project manager role um, it, it is too much for any one man or woman to handle. And I, I'm honestly a firm believer that there is nobody out there who has that entire skill set. And, and I, you know, it would be superhuman, to be honest. Um, I like to look at active verbs in my contracts because they give me an idea of what I'm going to talk to my client about in terms of what they're going to have to do. And if you can peg what you're going to have to do, then you start to get a really good handle on the activity, which you're then going to translate into your workbook, into a critical path, into what you're going to measure for your own value and everything else. You've got to have a good handle on your doing verbs. And NEC, as we know, is stuffed full of doing verbs. And that's because it uses the simple present active tense in all but very few cases. And the, one of the interesting things is rabbit hole between NEC3 and NEC4 is that there has been a marked change in the drafting that has um, altered between the two versions as to the approach um, of the drafting. But just parking that for a minute, you're nodding. I, you've already recognized these or maybe talked to other people about them. Um, you know, can, can the project manager do all of those things? Well, I think it's really impossible. You know, you've got to have a bloody good planner on your, on your, on your team for one thing you know, because of the centrality of the program in that particular form of contract. Um, I mean, you know, the, the, loading on all of the other stuff through the scope and, uh, and other things as well, it, you know, is all laudable, is all useful stuff, if it's useful, if it's reliable data and all the rest of it. But first of all, you've got to good, have a good handle on your basics, which is what is the arrangement that we have? And that is your contract. So we keep coming back around to that. Yeah, no, you're right. I think the um, the project manager hat is is a multi diverse hat, and they, and they can't work without some of the support functions like project controls mm. and PMO and and various other support functions. But um, I also think you know, particularly on projectified projects, uh, you know, I've had a long kind of relationship with what they call mega projects now, and it just seems like every project that comes out just has <laughs> to be mega because. Mm. There's some type of pissing contest in the government, I'm sure. Mine's worth a billion. Mine's 16. Mine's 50 oh, of billion. Course. Of like, course. what's going on here? So in particular oh. in Australia, where we're going through what we call a, an industry boom in transport and infrastructure in particular, right? So construction engineering. And the, the fallback contract is a PPP, mm -hmm. a private-public partnership for those that mm -hmm. don't know. And the challenge with them and particularly PPP alliances where you've got, you know, you've got your three kind of party, parties or parties, sorry. One of them is always the government, um, you know, just make sure you're doing the right thing. But they don't share anything. Um, and what I'd wonder is in these big projectified projects, why isn't 
someone with a contract law in that C-suite, in that kind of alliance directorship role. Now you'll see everyone else there in terms of seats at the table. There might be someone in commercial, but that doesn't necessarily they do contract law. Is there a difference mm-hmm. between commercial and contract people or commercial and law people? Or is it the same thing? Oh, it, it's not the same thing in general, although there are plenty of competent commercial people who will have done a course or two in law, um, probably contract law, and therefore have a decent handle on contracts. And so they should, because crikey, it's their job. <laughs> you know, if you're a contract manager or a contract executive, it should be squarely at the forefront of what you know about. Um, but it's not the same as um, being a contract lawyer in that sense. And you're right that that there's a there's an obvious hole and I'm afraid that it's one of the areas where legal doesn't shout enough um, and it and I and I noticed that very much in house although that isn't to say that any of the places where I was in house suffered from that p- problem particularly greatly um, but you do find legal is is one of those parts of the business which gets consulted but sort of left from the the party um and and sort of you know is asked for the recipe and and makes the cake and then somebody else takes the cake off and goes to the party with it um which is a lovely thing to be able to show so we do a lot of background work as contract lawyers but we don't often get to um to sort of credit ourselves about it and and that's okay because actually i I, personally i don't mind that at all um as as a lawyer all the work you do is confidential anyway so you're not going to get very much out of me in terms of um any specifics um um, unless i really slip up um um, but you're right even in those kind of alliancing um scenarios where you've got multi-party contracts and of course the government is there playing its bit sort of playing its bit but not really playing its partnering bit because that's very difficult thing that runs very deep is to let go of being the one in charge you know i am the one at the top it's my project it's my land it's our asset it's taxpayers money and and there is a certain thing that goes with that so to get into bed in an alliance way which has a completely different structure to it is really really hard and but actually that's where legal can have huge amounts of value because we do understand um I like to think I understand the very practical side because of that tripartite career that I've had. But of course, there are lots of lawyers who understand much more about the theory and the academic side of things. And that's why we get missed out from the top table is because there aren't enough people, dare I say, like me, who can actually bring some of that real life stuff to the table and and talk knowledgeably about projects that are are in a non-theoretical um, dull and boring legal way because nobody wants to talk about that we want to talk about how we get stuff done um, and then again making all work for industry is what we're all about so we, we we put contracts in place that help people to get stuff done and enable project managers to know where they stand on risk uh, on certainty and on clarity of terms and of course there's forms of contract like the NEC which are a good starting point um, and are helpful yeah. for regulating that relationship and setting it up. But again, it's all about how it's then moved into the delivery space and how it's how it's delivered in a practical sense, how those active verbs are then actually um, taken on and, and people do what the contract says they're supposed to do. And of course, if they don't know what it is because they haven't had access to the contract, they haven't been consulted about it, they haven't been... Um, able to participate in um, some of the terms that have been set then you know how on earth can we expect project managers to be able to do what of course should be a superlative job 
and delivering maximum success to contracts, time, budget, quality every time. But we can't expect them to do that if we haven't given them the means and the ability to, to, to question, to contribute, um, et cetera, et cetera, to the, to the arrangements that are being put, that have been put in place almost on their behalf. And then they're handed it and gone, off you go, go deliver this. This is going to be great, this asset thing, whatever it is we're going to build. <laughs> Some shiny oh, exactly. new boys toy. Yeah. <laughs> and I see that um, they've kind of treated, uh, I think, Laura, at least in the projects I've worked on, it's kind of like firefighters. You only come in when the fire's raging. Um, and sometimes then you don't really know what part of the building needs to be put out first. Um, is it the one with the screaming people or is it the one where the Rolls Royce is sitting? Um, it's, it's a very interesting topic and we can go down many rabbit holes. Uh, and I love the little nugget there that you said about um, active verbs. So if you're reading a contract... I think Martin's just nodded there as well. That's my like, thing. Yes, That's my copyright. Verbs. Boom. <laughs> yeah, Is there absolutely. a software that does that? Is there anything out there that just picks the active verbs for you and you just, you read it like uh, the matrix? No? Ah. I bet Microsoft like Word has got something in it that picks up a verb because it can at least, re but I don't know. I, I can't say about any particular knows, software. Get in touch with us, info at projectchatterpodcast.com. <laughs> Dale, over to you. Thanks. I love it. Sarah, I was wondering, actually, when you were chatting, when you're saying, I'm not going to share any details unless I slip up. I was actually going to try and squeeze you from for some interesting real life stories without naming anything or anyone. We can do that. We can do that. But um, we'll, we'll get into that in a bit. Uh, but I wanted to first just rewind a little bit because you spoke about, you know, we have freedom of contract. Mm. which means we can basically agree to anything as long as it's legally binding. But I thought, is that... No, as long as it's legal. Sorry, as long as, as, long it's, as it's legal, yeah. As long as it's legal, sorry. Yeah. And I was wondering, is that perhaps part of the problem and the issue? Because it's so loose. Mm -hmm. It reminded me, Val and I spoke to Martin Murphy, who's an Irishman, but been based in Spain for many years. And he's gone and done disputes, you know, from a scheduling perspective, et cetera. And he said, mm -hmm. well, in Spain, they don't really have a standard form of contract because there's this general culturally accepted way of working on projects. They don't, you know, the, the client doesn't even have project managers as, as an example. And so I thought, is there any sort of cultural, ethical, um, national <laughs> identity view to the way we do contracts perhaps in the UK, you mentioned Australia and South mm -hmm. Africa as well, um, that has an impact on, on how they administered because surely if they weren't so cumbersome and we didn't concentrate so much on the contract to make profit, maybe we'd actually make more profit and progress. Hmm, very interesting way of looking at it. I don't know what your thoughts on that. <laughs> well, I suppose your starting point with the comparator of, of Spain is a really interesting one because, of course, Spain as a continental European country is like many other countries of the world, subject to what is called a civil code. Um, so you have less need for a contract uh, in a way. You, you don't have common law. Common law is unwritten. You know, it's a thing which has existed. It was part of it was written down in the Magna Carta, as I've said, but a lot of it is all about custom and practice. And that's where the freedom of contract su subject to legality comes in. Um, other jurisdictions of the world have a lot more packed into their law. So their contracts are either a lot smaller or as your, your colleague and friend has said, you know, we just don't need this stuff because it, it's just part of how life is organized. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes that that is a hindrance to us because it's almost overwhelming you know it's like having too much choice at the sweet shop you know you just don't know where to start um, and that is 
actually where standard forms of contract can be incredibly useful because they do give us that start of a 10, they give us that leg up, they give us some consistency within industry, they give familiarity within industry as well, you know, you open up your tender pack, if you're acting for a contractor and, and what's the form of contract, oh, it's this one, oh yeah, we know that one, we can pull that one off the shelf or, or draw it down from the internet or whatever, so they give us a really good starting point and they do give some consistency and familiarity to people in the industry who are working with them. So that's one good part of it. But yeah, otherwise, you know, the fact that you can do what you like um, subject to legality can be problematic. Um, in the construction engineering arena in the UK, of course, you've got the Housing Grants Act piece of legislation, which, um, which does ring fence and box in construction contracts to some extent. Um, there is also similar uh, legislation in other parts of the world. Ireland's um, only in the last couple of years adopted um, a similar um, adjudication uh, type of provision. So you've got this specialist tribunal where you can send disputes as well. Uh, Hong Kong's been looking at it and doing something different. And I believe Australia and New Zealand have also got variants of a similar type of scheme, um, or at least that's uh, you know within governmental discussions and that. So there are some there are some um, some sort of borders, you know, it isn't complete, mm. you know, complete yeah. mayhem out there. Um, and we don't have to start with blank sheets of paper. That's really important um, for project managers to know that, you know, it isn't all on them. When we talk about all the active verbs that they have to do, particularly in forms of contract like NEC, it can be very overwhelming indeed. The last thing we need to do is to land project managers with just going, well, here's your blank sheet of paper if you go write the contract. So, you know, there are those of us who obviously deal with contracts day to day in terms of an expertise that we can lend support to, but also, you know, the existence of standard forms, which are relatively tried and tested. Uh, well, I'm sure we're going to get onto Z courses soon. I can feel it. Um, it you know, it, it gives us gives us some of that um, framework, um, you know, uh, and shape and, uh, and foundation um, as a starter for 10 yeah, no, absolutely. Z clauses is in two questions time on my list. I wrote that down. But um, before we get there. <laughs> Do you want to go through all the other options first, you know, before yeah. we get to Z, oh, ABC? Yeah, you know what? If we if we had Glenn Hyde on you, he'd probably recite it off by heart, every single clause and number and everything. We have had Glenn on before. We need to get him back because at the time, I think, what was out four and he was busy writing five as well. And I don't know if it was quite done, but he was busy doing or, or being part of you know, releasing five, I can't remember, but we need to get Glenn back. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I was intrigued as well around contract administrators right. or, or, or legal teams. How technically skilled do they have to be in, in knowing the, the actual subject matter of what's being delivered, whether that's a software project or a civil project or oil and gas, et cetera, and how adaptable do they need to be? Or, or is it enough just to understand the law? Mm. It's not enough, in my humble opinion, if you want to have a, a value-added impact for your client, if you want to give them direction, which is more than theoretical, um, if you want to give them guidance and a steer, which is practical, which is commercially orientated, but which is firmly grounded in legal principles. So you have to, for sure, know all that legal stuff because if you don't know your contract law um you didn't pass the module you fell asleep in lecture whatever it happens to be you know you see you, you've got to have that um you've got to have that foundation i've always relished the challenge on my projects of learning something new from the technical side you know I, i'm not going to be a cladding expert 
I'm not going to be a, um, a scheduling and planning expert by any means, far, far, far from it. But I find it really helps me to do my job in advising, in drafting, in looking for rabbit holes, in looking for um, pitfalls, if I know something about what the subject matter is. Um, and, you know, I, I guess over the years, I've done quite a lot of different sorts of projects in, in a few different arenas, but I've also been able to really specialize in in the infrastructure side in particular the railway not least because i spent 10 years you know doing in-house stuff for railway company so you know to that extent it's incumbent on you as an in-house lawyer to add value to your client and to do that you have to get stuck into what other people are up to the other benefit for me is is gaining that trusted advisor role um, and having people within a business who are naturally a little bit reticent to come to who perhaps aren't really sure what you do who've perhaps never had to deal with lawyers you know when I worked for for WSP they were, they'd never had any lawyers in the UK you know I was the second or third lawyer to go in there um, it was a very fledgling department in that sense we had to go out and I made it my business to go out to them and say hey what are you doing I'm interested in this stuff don't look at me so suspiciously honestly you know and it and it takes time to build that relate those relationships and that trust but you know, to do a good job as a contract lawyer, you know, if you know contract law, you can write a contract. But to write a contract that people can use, that people can take in their hands, that people can read and understand and deliver against, deliver against with their technical knowledge. You know, it, it's a really challenging and, and a real privilege to, to have a go at doing that and to really kind of hone a skill um, and be somebody who who companies like to come to and say, hey, we, 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 we've heard you're good at this stuff. Can you help us with this? Um, so, yeah. No, that's great. That's great. And we mentioned it a few times, Ed, clauses. You mentioned the different terms. <laughs> I mentioned I wanted to squeeze some Let's do this. <laughs> interesting <laughs> stories out of you. Val's got a few questions lined up on this. My question around it was going to be um, hopefully something fun. What are some of the most quirky interesting weird terms and perhaps said clause as well that you've you've seen witnessed that you just go why the hell would you sign up to that i wonder <laughs> just for entertainment value just for entertainment value <laughs> um well I, let, let me tell you that said clauses and and you know said clauses is particular to the nec contract yeah. but what we call additional clauses of contract so it is new drafting to a standard form of contract. So, you know, we talk about the value of and the usefulness of standard forms of contract because they give familiarity, they give consistency, they give industry standard benchmark terms, et cetera, et cetera. As soon as you start changing them, sometimes I say messing with it, depends how feisty I'm feeling. Yeah, if you start messing about with those terms then you can have unintended consequences, both in contract law, but also in the practicality then of how the contract is going to be delivered. Um, those can be good, those can be bad. Often they're badly drafted, which doesn't make for a happy, um, uh, a happily sort of put together contract. The jigsaw doesn't work and all sorts of other stuff. But there are some really well-drafted clauses that are just terrible, you know, and, and useless to people and not at all helpful. And I get really cross about those. Uh, and one of the reasons I get cross about it, and, I, and I'm, I'm not one to, um, to very vocally criticize my own profession because it's not very ethical to do it it's just say come on people <laughs> you know and again we come back round to you know, your very valid question of is it enough just to know contract law and that's why I say no is because I like to do drafting which is useful to people which you know if it isn't what's the point 
you know you pay money for people to draft mm. contracts for you the least you can do is give them something which they can use otherwise it's actually going to backfire and for me the education of project managers and contract managers is all around you know let me help you to understand the contract because actually it can be useful to you you've probably come across some really crap ones in the past they weren't drafted by me but your future ones can be if you would like to engage us but let me help you with the one you've got now because that's the one that you've got to deliver against now so yeah zag courses have got place sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad no, that's we can excellent. demonize Z clauses but i have to say nec have demonized themselves Z clauses and my mm. own view is it's not very helpful to have done that because you can't take the view that a standard form of contract is just it it, it can't answer every scenario yeah. and you shouldn't pretend to so we have to recognize that a standard form of contract is really helpful it might get you 50 percent of the way there it might get you 95 but it's never going to get you 100 percent in any scenario so we have to be prepared to look at that standard form and say okay this is the project we've got this is the form that everybody's decided to use what do we need to do to make this form work? What are the peculiarities of this project? What are the interesting bits of this project where we're going to need to do some extra writing, you know, extra measurement, different forms of inspections, you know, how you're going to measure defects, how long um, you're going to hold retention for, all sorts of stuff. You know, it really pertains, and, and that's the bit that makes the context the very special, you know, um, beautiful vehicle in many ways that they can be if people are allowed to come in and, and, and support that really holistically and not from a purely um, risk averse um, legal academic um, background yeah yeah no and I 100% agree with you because and Val says I say this every episode so drum roll but a project is a unique endeavor with a definite start and a definite end so you can't Absolutely. just take something stock standard and make it work absolutely but we so, know also the real life bit means that we cannot start with purity each time we have yeah. to start with a standard form or something that we've used before to give us that leg up and that and that heave ho forward and you know there's never enough time to do a job properly anyway let alone if you have to start with a blank sheet of paper you asked me about an interesting z clause um I'll tell you something I have come across, which is really interesting, and it shows whether people do a good contract review or not. And that is hidden clauses, which are nonsense. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this or any of the listeners will do when they read mm -hmm. this as well. Particularly on very big, fat contracts, you often find um, a couple of nonsense clauses in there. Um, there's one I've come across a couple of times, actually, and I think it must have emanated from um, the same source. I don't know who genuinely, um, and it uh, and it has as part of the scope um, a, a requirement for um, the named project manager to be brought um, bacon eggs, bacon and egg sandwiches um, every day at seven o'clock in the morning um, with a little pot of ketchup and a little pot of brown sauce and a cup of tea and a round of toast uh, you know and a glass of orange juice and all this other stuff. That is awesome. Um, but it's but it's uh, subtle enough and it's written in exactly the same format with all the right numbering and you know, everything follows you would if you weren't reading it properly you would never find this thing and of course you'd sign up to it and then at some point somebody would discover it and you'd all agree it's a bit of nonsense and you cross it out because that's the real life bit but it's incumbent on us as advisors to make sure that we do read this stuff for people and um you know flag it up with a big that, smiley face and go nah. is that real is that real yeah. can i have it as a cost component is my standard reply back 
Dale, we should put that in our contracts from now on. Just make yeah. sure. I'll do it for you as a freebie <laughs> after this session. There we go. <laughs> you can have it in your retainer or your release form. Yeah, <laughs> can we'll do that. I, I just well, let, let me just comment one. Sorry, one more thing, Val, just before I hand to you. I was intrigued because you have this notion of, okay, you've got your commercial team and we've spoken about you have, you know, potentially people or you should have people that know contract law and that are able to administer the contract. But then you have times where you go to in-house legal counsel. When is the right time to go to legal counsel? Because for some companies, it's like all the time we have to make sure that, you know, we're okay. But then others, it's a bit more like, okay, that's only when we're in shit. <laughs> well, it comes back to that firefighting point that Val mentioned, isn't it? You know, where do you start when the entire building is aflame? Yeah. Um, the, the answer is the children, obviously, than the Rolls Royce. Um, <laughs> you know, in, in, in my view and in my experience, and again, in each of those three, in each of the three, three sort of um, parts of my career, it's been different. As a private practice lawyer, you, nobody ever comes to you soon enough because as soon as they ring you up, you start the clock ticking because that's your fees because you're working for a commercial organisation that has to earn squillions to have nice offices mm. and shiny toys and all the rest of it. You know, when you're in house, it's almost the opposite. It's like you're a cost head anyway. And this is the way I've always looked at it. I'm a cost head to a business. I need to earn my keep. I need to show I'm valuable. I need to show I'm wanted. I need to show I'm useful, which is why I get go out there with my hard hat and my boots and I say, How can I help you? You know, I do understand contracts. Are you are you stuck on anything? What are your sticky compliments? Um, what's been hanging around has been difficult to resolve. Um, and of course, if you can get a a feel for that and 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 i really like to become part of the project team in that way just another person on the team you know lending their expertise as everybody else does on the team with their technical risk commercial whatever else expertise um you know and that's the that is the real value in a way in in, um, in being, being able to to offer up services as a legal advisor and it's a real privilege to be able to do so because um, there are licenses and laws and ethical codes and all sorts of stuff that attach to being in that role. And there are privileges, including legal privilege as a concept, which attaches to someone who, who is in that position. And having the ability to give a client privilege over their documentation is, is a privilege in itself. So that gets a bit circular um, sort of uh, down the sinkhole. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea of when's the best time to come is definitely as early as you feel you should, because oof, when the referral paper hits your desk, it's too late. You know, you can get all your hoses out and start spraying the water everywhere and hoping for the best. And, and you might dampen a couple here and there, but actually there's going to be one which is just smoldering away, which is just going to go like that before you realise it. Just to follow your fire analogy. <laughs> Not sure how yeah, well it's great. going, but anyway, I'll keep I'll keep plugging away at it for a while, um, you know. But actually, you can you can help more with the fire preventative measures um, by by helping them to get the contract right, by 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 giving a, a steer and a guidance here and there, by writing a template notice or a letter, which then somebody can use themselves, educate themselves about, reproduce it, then they can do it and run with it themselves, and that is a real joy to be able to do, um, and and that again is a is a privilege of a position so um it's never early enough um but then you know I, I know project controls people and planners who would say the same thing so you know having full sense about this stuff is 
Is that is ID, true. But not true. Yeah. true. <laughs> we never get, uh, we ne- timing is a, is, a, is a critical element on, on, on most projects. And we always, in hindsight, we're like, should have done that earlier. Yep. Um, but I, I, I want to jump into the uh, kind of experiential part of your role because you've obviously been on a lot of projects, you've experienced and seen a lot of things. And one thing I've noticed on projects when things don't go right is uh, the circle of trust gets very small. And um, I wanted to know from your experience, you don't have to name names, but some projects where there's been a lot of conflict and kind of what was the scenario and how did you resolve that conflict? I mean, conflict from a performance perspective, or maybe it's between the client and the contractor in terms of progress or uh, litigation or anything else like that. Have you got some juicy stories for us? Oh God, there's so many. I should write a book one day. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous in some senses, um, because you know you get very tiny things that niggle people, and as you say, that that trust, you know, as soon as it starts to crack and to ebb away, it, it, life becomes very difficult. Small projects, big projects, and everything in between. I mean, I've been involved in some very large hundreds of millions of pounds contracts, which have had delivery problems all the way through um nothing particular and then sometimes something very particular you know properly professionally negligent designs and things that just don't work you know you get the train on the test track and it just doesn't go round and you think you know how the hell have we got to this point (laughs) you know let's deconstruct the whole thing into back into pieces put it all back together again and see what happens Um, you know so 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 there's those very kind of big ones and, and I suppose those are those are big juicy ones in some ways but they're often unsatisfactory ones because they've gone too far in the wrong direction such that you can't get them back rectify it, and then of course produce you know a train that does go around the tracks um of course the, 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 there have been so many um over the years I don't know what to point to I had a really interesting one actually oh here's one um probably about 15 years ago now um involving um the building of a new embassy so government was a client, I can say that much. Um, somewhere where the UK government didn't really trust it, but needed an embassy. Got to be one of those countries where you have an embassy, that sort of thing. But, you know, don't really like the people there, what they do, how they conduct themselves or anything else, frankly. Um, so, yeah, there's a, there's a handful of places in the world that fall into that category, probably more nowadays. North Korea. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't but there are some parallels i have to say oh saudi there you go i, I right. didn't get to okay stop i didn't get to do a site visit and i probably wouldn't have done one anyway um there's another there's another clue but yeah anyway that one was really interesting because this whole thing had been built there was loads of stuff in the contract because of a mistrust from the off and it was fine because everybody mistrusted everybody so to some extent there was trust about the agreement of mistrust really you know difficult stuff um and uh, and what um what happened towards the end of the build when the whole thing had had first fix second fix or being kitted out pretty pictures paint on the walls the whole thing um was that somebody discovered a bug a bug in the wall of one of this massive parts of the embassy and so you, when you mean imagine a bug, you mean a, a, a security listening bug, device a listening device oh wow yeah. yeah really you know fascinating for a junior lawyer at the time working with a very senior that's exciting yeah lawyer. very very interesting exciting but all hell broke loose as you can probably imagine um over at you know um 10 downing street and all the rest of it um 
Uh, and of course, you know, what do you actually do? Again, you know, law tells you one thing, this thing hasn't been built properly, we're not going to pay you, there's defects, da da da, all of this stuff, claims, insurance, all of that. But you know, what do we do with this great big thing, which for all we know could just have this one tiny rogue bug in it, lots of day labor. Um, lots of um, incomplete cards, you know, I mean, and, and of course, technology has moved on in terms of um, uh, traceability and certificates and um, security passes and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, putting that aside, you know, <laughs> is there one of these things or are there a thousand of these things? You know, it's this massive complex. And what do you do? You know, so <laughs> we get this expert in and, uh, whole expert team actually in the end and they have to start doing test holes so this whole building becomes punctured with holes to try and discover and find out oh my god if there's any more of these things and it is as random as you like i could not i saw drawings for like you know where they were going to do them and then of course the post um, exercise uh, drawings as well, you know, mapped on top, CAD style. You know, this is where we did them. This is what X marks the spot. You know, all of this. And you've got this building, which in the meantime is punctured in a thousand places. You know, and but the upshot of it is, you still got this thing which is standing there, which the client doesn't want. You know, what are you going to do? You may as well just detonate it and start again. Except that it's cost half a billion pounds and all the rest of it. There's people waiting to move in. There's dependencies for visas. There's all sorts of human impact and, and other project impact. And of course, other um, local traders and, and contractors that were then going to come in and do decorating and furniture and all this kind of stuff. You know, and HM government is literally there trying to light the fuse and say, no, we're just going to start again. Um, you know, and in the end, in the end, it was a relatively happy ending, but they did a really, really thorough, the whole thing looked like a bloody Swiss cheese, honestly, by the end of it. Um, and, and they, I left the firm, but they, by the time I left, I don't think they really knew. I think they thought they had, I think they thought they knew, but I know that the partner I was working with wasn't convinced that they really knew that they'd found all these things. So who knows, perhaps to this day, there are still, listening devices wow. in this particular sounds, embassy in a part of the world nobody wants to go to that's pretty tense i imagine that really? the, the room would have been and you're not online then obviously that was a face-to-face -face no. kind of and yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. so well, we, you know we're going going down to uh, going down to the foreign office and talk to them about this and, and and looking at looking at these plans and saying you know how is this plan found out how long do we think it's going on trying to ask relevant questions you know obviously looking in the contract because hm grub is that sort of a client that they you know what can we do about it you know back in the day i you know, i will emphasize it was 15 years ago and and, and to some extent um, attitudes and and options for dispute resolution and that have moved on but ultimately like i said the practical outcome of not having paid attention to good contract management and project management and delivery and testing inspections as they went along as so you had this massive swiss cheese of a thing that nobody wanted to occupy what do you do with it yeah sarah i don't know how you did it but you made contract law exciting again well done <laughs> uh, for those listening uh no that's great i've got one lead on question and i'm going to go to martin um how much of your job is just from that that that, that story you told us a great story is um, kind of literature interpretation and how much of your job is like family therapy? Is it an equal weighting? Is it mostly 
behaviors or is it mostly contracts that cause the most grief and conflict? I think it's not paying attention to contracts. Um, I think it's a mixture of complacency, of arrogance in some places, and of lack of education um, to, to, to enable and to empower, and I, I sort of dislike the words, but to empower in a positive sense project managers to be able to get to grips with and to really drive in a confident way the projects that they're being asked to deliver. Um, so it, it's a funny one. It's sort of like sticking your head in the sand and, and doing the way, doing it the way you've always done it because you're sort of okay with that. You know, it's not great, but it, it'll do and it works most of the time. So so you get on with it like that. Um, there's definitely an element of family therapy in there. Um, you know, and I do, when I'm on projects, I do like to think of the project team I'm working with as a sort of a family, although, you know, one never gets too close because one's in a professional capacity. Um, but certainly, you know, project woes, come to me probably sooner than 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 other people in project teams and part of that again is the privilege of being an independent advisor of having the ability to 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 take in some of that stuff and to give a genuinely objective opinion on what should be done next and 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 you know how uh, how, how things might be able to be improved or, or what have you going forward you know it certainly can be quite difficult um, and people confide in you and tell you all sorts of interesting and juicy stuff and then you have to get on the phone with the subject matter of the prior conversation <laughs> you're thinking you know how's this going to work but you know it is it, it's a thing that you that you just learn how to do and you and you have to do it in order to be in that very privileged position of being a trusted advisor um, perhaps family therapy will be my next career when I've had enough of this Nice transition. Yeah, Thank definitely. You. Martin, get in there. Yeah, just, just kind of following on from that, we, we mentioned at the start of the podcast about um, how the contracts build, forms the relationship between the, the two parties and kind of following on for what you just said there around my questions around transparency. We have certain types of contract that promote transparency, your option C's, D's, I'm sure there's plenty of other forms around the world, but often businesses may not want to be transparent when there's an issue that when they're liable for for something you know potentially mm -hmm. using your example in the embassy there um, yeah. they may mm -hmm. not want to share that with their, their client um, probably yeah. probably don't how how do you generally advise businesses to to get around this do you recommend being upfront you know get it out on the table work to a solution but obviously there's profitability implications like what what's your experience on this and um, well, again, again, going back to that, that independence and that trusted advisor bit, it, it's a duty and as well as a right. And of course, your clients come to you because they want your advice. But it's also a duty in terms of giving them straight up what their situation looks like in the eyes of the law, because ultimately, as I said, it's going to be a court or a tribunal that's going to determine um, what the answer is, what the legally correct answer is to that. Now, nobody really wants to go down that line of stuff, but your clients have to know what could be on the horizon for them if they don't take certain actions. Um, so, you know, the fact that they come to you with a particular problem is, is the start of that, um, that, that understanding, that journey bit, if you like. Um, you, you, you suggested that, you know, some contracts have transparency in them um, the c and the d options of nec do to some extent have transparency in them but it's a transparency which is demanded and driven only in relation to cost and it's because of how cost is pegged and weighted and pain and gain and all of that stuff so 
the transparency there is very limited and it has a specific purpose. So if you're asking about transparency more generally as a contract, then of course that would be a great thing for projects to have, wouldn't it? Everybody would benefit from more transparency about progress, about measurement, about budget, about delay, about bugs in embassies, about all any sorts of problems. You know, it is incumbent on project parties to raise that. In that arena, then NEC is a helpful form of a contract because it has the early warning thing, which not only encourages, but requires. So you've got to have an obligation on parties to be transparent, because as you say, the natural thing is to not be transparent, because you're either a client who doesn't really want to say how much money is in their pocket to spend on this thing that they want a big shiny thing, but they only want to pay for a sort of unshiny small thing. Um, or, you know, you're, you're a contractor who wants to protect their profitability on it. Um, to maybe take some shortcuts maybe they're really smart and they've worked out where they can take shortcuts that's not a problem as far as the contract's concerned provided it meets the delivery outcomes meet what is required again cost quality um, time the quality thing of course is a difficult thing which is why the embassy story is quite an interesting one um, uh, the costs of course are, are impactful in that way because what do you do with that thing that nobody wants um, zero earned value um, you know what do you do about time and a whole heap of on cost and, and, and consequential stuff which then has to be unraveled as well um, I'm generally in favor of transparency um, and I'm generally in favor of putting one's case across um, to um, your would-be opponent if you like um, to your other contractual party because I think if you don't do it at that point when are you going to do it so if you do it early and it doesn't have to be as early as possible it has to be when you are ready um, but it has to be genuinely ready and you've got to be able to put it across and I say you put it across once you do it well you let it have impact you let it settle and then you start to have those conversations say okay look I've put this thing out there we have this real problem with this thing. You've been ignoring us or, or we don't feel you've been very responsive to us. And, you know, this is our proposal for how we're going to sort this out. You know, and why wouldn't you do that? You know, why would you save it up, you know, and, and, and you know, kind of, kind of go, ta-da, at the end of the project? You know, there's no point. Um, so, again, you know, a contract like NEC is quite useful because it encourages and obliges the parties to engage, to talk, to resolve, to assess, to certify, all those active verbs that we talked about earlier as well. So I, I'm very much in favour of getting it are there, are there any other, on the table. And are I'm, there any other standard forms of contract out there that uh, go further than NEC3, uh, NEC option C for transparency? Well, well, NEC isn't the answer to everything. No, no, no. Um, and uh, <laughs> and it, one, one can improve on the drafting of NEC uh, in many respects. Um, there are lots of other forms of contract. Um, I mean, you know, People always sort of compare and contrast the, the JCT form of contract in the UK and, and talk about, you know, old fashioned style of contract versus new, modern, funky form of contract. And actually, at the end of the day, <laughs> the scales fall from their eyes because you have two forms of commercial contract, which are bilateral buy-sell contracts. What's the difference? There's some nice words. There's some good ideas. There's lots of decent processes, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, they're buy-sell contracts. So you come back round to what's the point of transparency? Well, there's no point unless I'm asked to do it. What am I going to gain from it if I am transparent? Is it going to help me or actually is it going to come back to bite me on the arse? Because, you know, this is something where I've been too upfront too quickly, 
too keen to please the client and the client goes oh that's very nice thanks very much we're going to get someone else into uh, to, to the next one so yeah you have to be careful with transparency but i'm absolutely uh, uh, genuinely and generally in favour of it uh, in most circumstances. Yeah, it seems the, just the right thing to do. You sometimes it have does, to use your it? head on, it on some of these things. And, and I'll tell you something else, and that is that courts and adjudicators and tribunals appreciate that. Yeah. So there is a long game to be played in one sense with potential disputes, with early warnings and that sort of thing. So doing the right thing does pay dividends but unfortunately it sometimes only pays dividends when you come in front of a tribunal which is the ultimate arbiter of your problem which of course has cost you time and money and stress and everything else to get there but they'll give you the right answer and they'll give you credit for it the problem with being too transparent up front pre any procedure like that is that you don't get anything for it the yeah. project manager doesn't go ah you've been so good thank you so much for telling us all about this early of course you can have this that and the other they go oh thanks for telling us about that no you can't have it uh, you know and assess it at even less than you'd probably get anyway so you know um <laughs> i've been slightly flippant with, with my project manager friends there but um you know there's a time and a place for transparency uh, and if it's helpful to the project then of course you must do it so i'll stop there absolutely it's about getting the right balance value i think you got one more question I can't help myself. I've just got so many questions for you, Sarah. Um, but I, I take your point on transparency as well. I think, uh, you know, there's other factors like proprietary uh, information or intellectual assets. Mm. Uh, if we give away too much, then then what's the point? You know, we, we basically hand it over to the client that eventually hand it over to a competitor. Um, and then I think as well from just commentary that when we scope a project, the client gives you the requirements and you scope out a project at a bid stage. Let's take a talk about big projects we haven't understood the full scope of the project mm. at bid stage. It's kind of like a, well, here's our experience, our capability, our approach. This is what we think you said. And out of three contenders, we're probably the closest to what you need. But at the time the client issued that information, even the client didn't know what they wanted. So the contract is built on ambiguous scope. And what ends up happening um, from my observations is we then seal ourselves to this compliancy and if it goes too detailed there's no wriggle room and as you said with transparency it actually ends up putting us in a really awkward position and uh, the first thing to go out the window when there is problems or performance issues is collaboration it's the first thing to go it's like oh well <clears throat> you know we're nice up until a point but now you're you're just not meeting our, our demands on this very difficult complex project um, and there's so many variables to that and it's really unfair, actually, on, on, on both parties. I think, you know, there's, there's certain egos that enter the room at this point and um, make it more difficult, I think. And some people relish in the fact that there is conflict. I think um, some people make a business out of commercially making things awkward when they don't need to be. Um, I've certainly been on projects, and I'm, that's why Martin's laughing because he was there, um, where I've seen um, particular personalities actually impact the way projects perform. Um, what do you do about that where project managers are right and there is a problem, but they're happy to collaborate and they're, they're they are able to manage the problem, but the senior executives, the decision makers on both sides just don't seem to get along. Is there a silver bullet that, uh, that we can 
we can offer as up as advice maybe for for those listening well it is a very invidious position isn't it for a project manager who finds themselves stuck between you know the ungrateful client and the unwilling contractor where you know the trust mm. has fallen apart and it's really part of the project manager's role to act as a broker between those parties to act as an agent in legal terms uh, certifying and assessing and all that sort of stuff um, but also to almost act as that family therapist um, and to make sure that yeah. those two heads are not together and egos is massively problematic um, I don't have the answer to that other than you know I'm naturally quite an impatient person, as my pop will attest to. Um, and as a planner, he knows about measuring time. Um, so um, I, I do I do have to make sure that I think really carefully about how I'm going to support that project manager to 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 broker um, the deal, to, to to bash the heads together if, if push comes to shove. Um, because it is a really difficult position to be in. Now, of course, the project manager can only do their professional best. Yeah, they can make an assessment, they can make a certification, they can make a decision, whatever the active verb is that attaches to the problem at hand. Um, they can only do that with the information they've got. And that may be inadequate, it may be patchy, it may be transparent, which is, you know, Martin's wish list, or it may be completely um, opaque, uh, unavailable and people have put obstacles um, in the way so that that information isn't available to a project manager and that's a really horrible position to be in um, and of course as a project manager you, you you feel like you're facing everything and having to deal with with with, with the whole lot you know we talked about all the verbs that attach all the different roles that have to be played by a project manager in the NEC form of contract for example you know and you just can't do all of that and no man is an island in that respect so I like to make sure that my project managers feel supported first off. So they've got me to come to in terms of contract help. Where do I stand? What do I have to do? When do I have to do it? How far can I push this? Yeah, my client is the one who's paying me, but actually that puts me in a really difficult position too, because my client has now turned into this, you know, you're in my pocket type of personality, which happens horribly quickly sometimes in these scenarios, which just, you know, spiral downwards down the sink. Um, and, and, and suddenly you get this sort of jostling for position where the client is asserting itself and saying, again, we talked about contracteers, didn't we? You know, it's my project. Yeah. You're my contractor. You're my project manager and all this sort of stuff. And that's really hard because you're looking at that. And that's a human, a single human in that position. So first off, it's a question of support. Um, family therapy support but contract practical support to, to to help that project manager know where they stand and what they can do and of course then they've got to have the guts to do some of the reporting which the client isn't going to like which the contractor may not like either which probably nobody's going to like but mm. this will like it because you know you've done the right thing you've done the professional thing you've supported your company whether it's your own whether you're a freelancer or whether you're in a big you know um household name type of a company you have to do the right thing professionally that of course impacts then on um, ethics and codes of conduct accreditations professional negligence and professional indemnity insurance and all the things that go with that so it is really incumbent on project managers to look after themselves at that moment both as individuals and as employees as well as to try and do their best to to, to project manage the, the the parties through whatever that difficulty is of course you know the ultimate thing is that you 
you have to say, I'm, I can't do this anymore. And um, I'm reluctantly walk away with your head held high but you know that that is a real thing and and if push comes to shove that's what project manager has to do but of course you know you don't yeah. advise somebody to do that readily you, you try and help them through it and um you know blood may be spilled when heads are bashed but it may they may you know the concussion may come out with a different you know different outcome and, and people can move on not easy though very exactly that's that's right. It's exactly what I did, Sarah. I walked away. No, I didn't. Um, I have a, <laughs> I have a question. Um, more just just generalistic. Um, and if there's anything we can help, by the way, you mentioned the not for profit and and the APM SIG. You know, if Project Chatter can get involved, we'd love to help. We uh, we try and enhance and amplify any any good deeds, mm-hmm. any paying it forward for the project community. Um, is there any free resources or like an anonymous helpline for project managers that are having contract difficulties and just someone they can talk to you know sometimes they're just locked in these commercial reviews for like nine ten hours they get out everyone says commercial refresh and if i ever hear that again i'm going to cry but um is there is there anywhere people can go and (laughs) they just downloaded is there an app you know contract law common law how do we get people educated on this subject matter Oh, gosh, if I had enough time to do all of those things, I would have definitely embarked on at least half of them by now. All of them are fantastic ideas. There is no help for poor old project managers. I mean, you know, uh, well, there is in the sense that you can, you know, uh, there is a there is a helpline for from the APM and from PMI for project managers to get to to ask for help. And, you know, there are there are. you know there are groups on linkedin and all this sort of stuff but you have to be a little bit careful because you can't get into specific sometimes you know you're putting that information out to the world you're going to be subject to confidentiality clauses and things like that so that can get a bit tricky so you know the kind of whistleblowing uh, anonymous citizens advice bureau you know um type of thing is what project managers need but no i I can't supply that but i would love to be able to get involved any of our listeners that are out there they might be in they might be inspired, Sarah, by this conversation, getting exciting about contract law or maybe even a WikiLeaks page. Not that I'm promoting that. I'm just saying, <laughs> uh, feel free. I'll <laughs> over to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I love it. It's, it's great. I, I just wanted to comment on the Swiss cheese and I, I got all geeky because Martin mentioned earned value and everything. Like I was like, okay, well, if you get the Swiss cheese building and you have to then load up, mm you can't unearn because you're quite strict with earned value and you can't mm. unearn. And then maybe you would because it's a rebase. Anyway, I just thought I'd comment on that because I got all geeky and it's got nothing to do with contract law. Uh, but we do. No, but you can build that in, of course, if you want to, if you want to have that as a measurement tool, well, if that's, that's going to be useful. Yeah. So, well, well this is Especially the thing. If it's future stuff. A lot. There are very few that I've worked with, but where actual contract payments are based on earned value. And I think mm-hmm. it's a fantastic yeah. mechanism if you can get that in place, but very few yeah. actually take advantage of it. Um, but no, maybe for another podcast. That. Nobody <laughs> likes that. Nobody likes. Nobody would do any work, would they? Because when do you measure the value of what's been built? You know, mm. to, to you know, build building brick walls. The easy example, isn't it? Yeah. You know, you've got to lay a thousand bricks in order to make a wall. You've put eight hundred in. Is the wall any good? You know, you don't get the value from the wall until it's a thousand high. How long yeah. long is that going to take? And who's going to do the work and who's going to fund it in the meantime? So, you know, I love on value. It's got loads of loads of useful stuff, but you know, you, you've yeah. got to have reliable data 
you've got to know what you're building and measuring and uh, you're not going to be able to peg it to contract payments. There's not a chance, especially with longevity and legacy stuff, you know, coming into it. Yeah. How many yeah. people are still using the Olympic swimming pool? You know, if I was paid on that basis, you know, you'd be wanting a very large kind of, you know, payment uh, profile in your contract because you're not going to be paid for years after. So you've got to build up, you've got to, you know, load up that question too. And that comes back to taxpayer value for money and all sorts of other stuff. So, you know, your project's going to cost more if you want to do that because no, effectively you're asking me to front load your, sure, but <laughs> your project. Yeah. And perhaps we might have a bit more transparency and less risk as well. And so inevitably, mm-hmm. although it might cost more upfront, it might cost less in the long run. I don't know. It's a, it's another podcast. I think, it I, would. Think. I think it would. Yeah. Let's do part two. <laughs> Come back with some numbers and some pictures. Exactly. Yeah. But- Sure. Yeah, it'd be great. But on that note, I mean, you know, we went down this rabbit hole of contract law and we we stayed down this rabbit hole. And I know there's so many other angles that we could speak about when it comes to law. I know we are a bit um, limited on time with you because it is late and we don't want to keep you, you know, the whole night. But um, we do also want to move on to the feature. Uh, and this is, I mean, we, we talk okay. about, you know, you making law exciting and fun again. And this is a bit of fun as well. Uh, where Martin takes our guests through the paces and puts our guest in the hot seat. Okay. So Martin, over to you. What are you going to put Sarah through? Uh, so yeah, this is our guest feature called Defend the Indefensible. It's where we invite our guests to defend a ridiculous statement for 30 seconds. It's inspired by some of the ridiculous statements we've heard over the course of our careers. Um, okay. So if you're if you're ready for this, um, oh, I wish I had a cold towel. Then I'd be ready. Okay, go <laughs> on, hit like me. Guinness zero. Hit me, yes, quite. Okay, Sarah, uh, you have thirty seconds to defend the following statement. Most projects are successful until commercials are involved. Discuss. Gosh, well, let's not have commercials involved in projects at all, and then we won't have any issue about project success whatsoever. Stick with contract lawyers. We know our stuff. We can support project managers. Project managers know their stuff, and if they trust us, off we go. I'm not sure if that's 30 seconds yet. Um, It probably doesn't defend anything whatsoever, but it's absolutely indefensible to say that commercial people are useless to projects. Short and sweet. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> very good. Ooh, thank you. Um, I've before missed we go, that bit in prior podcasts that I'd listened to. That was very exciting. Thank you for doing that. Uh, before you go, we've got, got just got well, time for one more one. one more feature. Um, oh, it's no. called Fiverr. Five quick fire questions, all about yourself. So if you're ready, um, let's make a start. Okay. Okay. And number one, would you rather spend your day with people or technology? People. What's more important, time, cost, or quality? quality it's a consistent theme there <laughs> um number three what book would you recommend to our subscribers anything by isabel allende because it looks at the history of south america the politics and the social side of life Perfectly what will be your <laughs> nice what will be your new work routine office home or hybrid I've been at home for about eight years now, so perhaps a little more office and a little more hybrid. <laughs> wow, interesting. And um, last one, what was your biggest mistake on a project? Not getting involved and bullying my way into it early enough. <laughs> Good, thanks a lot. Awesome. Pleasure. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a fascinating podcast <laughs> and we always knew it would be, um, before we even hit record, we had loads of fun just, you know, catching up. Uh, and, and 
sort of just delving into where we might go with this episode but uh, I didn't know it would take us the way it did and it's been so insightful for I've learned a hell of a lot so thank you and I'm sure all the listeners will as well we'll post the links to the webinar as you um, mentioned we'll, we'll get those from you and we'll post those in the show notes um, and also I just want to say a big shout out to Christine Stone because Christine you know mentioned yeah. we should get in touch with you um, and she was 100% correct again that, you know, you are amazing. And so thank you for, for giving up your time and sharing your insights and thoughts. Before we let you go, any final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Oh, just that it's been a really fun session. And I'm so happy to have the opportunity to be enthusiastic um, from my heart about contracts and to hopefully give project managers a bit more of support in being able to do their jobs and to maybe encourage them to have a bit more of a voice to, to, to speak up because they're doing an incredible job under often very difficult circumstances. So I'm, I'm right with you guys and girls and, um, you know, do let us know if we can help with anything. Fantastic. And we'll take up your offer and get you back for a follow-up part two at some stage in the future. Val, any final thoughts from you? Oh, Sarah, you've, you've brought excitement back to my life in the contract law space. Um, enjoy your pizza. And uh, I think Thank you, you did pass the trifecta today. You gave us, you were, we were raw, we were informal and informative. So I think we did a really great job. But thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. It's been a lot of fun. But I am looking forward to my pizza now. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, folks, that is all the time we have. Uh, but remember to hit subscribe before you go. A massive thank you once again to our guest, Sarah Shooter. And thank you all for listening. Till next time, we say stay safe, be disruptive, and have fun doing it. From me, Val, and Martin, it's bye for now. information blogs or to support our charities visit projectchatterpodcast.com and if you would like to sponsor the podcast get in touch via our website you can also leave us a voice message via our anchor page and let us know if there's something or someone specific that you would like on the podcast Views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the participating individuals and not necessarily to the individual's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. Additionally, any views or opinions are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, or individual.